This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. Do your investments align with your values? Well, now is the time to increase your triple bottom line to better people, profit, and the planet. Amalgamated Investment Services, a division of America's socially responsible bank, has a deep-seated commitment to affecting systemic change through investments. By specializing in triple bottom line impact, they can help navigate the common hurdles experienced by nonprofit organizations and foundations, from creating a sustainable policy statement to avoiding the all-too-prevalent greenwashing. If you'd like to join them in creating a more just and sustainable world, please visit amalgamatedbank.com slash nonprofitinvesting. Securities offered through Infinex Investments Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Amalgamated Investment Services is a trade name of Amalgamated Bank. Infinex and Amalgamated Bank are not affiliated. As a leader of a nonprofit, you know firsthand how important it is to have the right technology, tools, and strategies in place to achieve your mission. Well, that's where Heller Consulting comes in. Heller Consulting is a premier consulting firm that specializes in helping nonprofit organizations achieve their goals through effective technology strategy and implementation. Whether you need help with technology roadmaps, CRM strategy, Salesforce, or Microsoft implementations, Team Heller has you covered. With Heller Consulting on your side, you can trust that you'll have the support you need to make the most of your organization's technology resources. Visit teamheller.com slash NLP to learn more. Again, that's teamheller.com slash NLP to learn more. When it comes to leadership attributes, what are the top attributes in your opinion? Is it motivation? Is it vision? Is it integrity? Most often, the answer to that question emerges from your own experience or what you've already seen. My guest today explores various aspects of leadership by interviewing 25 leaders of color. And what he finds is both interesting and insightful when it comes to this whole issue of how we view leadership and how we develop leaders. My guest today is Darren Issam. Darren is a partner at the Bridgespan Group, which consults with nonprofits, NGOs, donors, and investors to advance learning and accelerate the impact of their work and philanthropy. Enjoy today's show. Well, Darren, it is great to have you on the show today. Leadership, this entire podcast is dedicated to this topic. For many of us, when we think of leadership, we're informed by what we've already seen often, right? Or what we've experienced. However, having said that, when we seek to recognize certain attributes that define leaders, sometimes we can be unaware of our familiarity bias. And essentially, familiarity bias is our preference as human beings to stay within our comfort zone and overvalue the choice that we already know or the experience we already know. Now, this can be true when it comes to how we think of leadership and specifically leaders of color. And this is the subject of a recent article you, Darren, have recently written. And of course, a podcast, which we'll get a chance to talk about here soon. And for the article anyway, you interviewed 25 leaders of color across the social sector. So first, give us a quick overview of the article and why did you write it? 
Of course, Robin, thanks for making time. And I also want to give a shout out to my team. It was a great team of us working on this work. I, I do want to talk a little bit about kind of the goal of the work in general. So as part of our work from a racial equity perspective, I joke that I lead a lot of the firm's work in, in uh, equitable philanthropy. And, and my job is to make sure it's not an oxymoron. Uh, but it's really thinking about how do we support communities and community leaders that are very often overlooked. And so much of our work, the goal is really to elevate the skills and assets of BIPOC leaders and show that they, you know, differentially possess certain skills that are critical for impact. And these skills are very often overlooked or they're dismissed by folks in power. So our goal is in many ways to encourage philanthropy and philanthropists uh, and philanthropic professionals to define and, and assess leadership in more equitable ways that correspond with increased giving to BIPOC-led organizations. So we really want to show the world these assets that leaders of color brings to work that are beyond just being proximate. Uh, I joke all the time, my husband's a runner, I'm not a runner at all, but I joke all the time that, uh, you know, I, I like to think that if you learn how to run at a high altitude, uh, you definitely learn to run very differently. And you have a set of skills and capability and muscles that make you excel when you actually get to the marathon. And so I feel like in many ways, so many leaders of color, those that come from normally marginalized communities, they've been trained at high altitude, right? And so we're tr trying to make sure that we recognize and appreciate the skills they developed in training that way and show folks that it's a differential set of skills that really allow them to run that marathon and win uh, more easily when it comes to impact. I mean, so really, and surely the, the article is about getting at uh, interviewing leaders of color, many of whom had never been interviewed as leaders in the space, or in giving them the opportunity to talk about what were the things that they did or thought of differently from a work perspective, and giving them really an opportunity to use their personal stories, both through the article and through the podcast, which we'll talk about a little bit later, to inspire funders to interact, foster relationships with the leaders differently, and also trust them more with the resources. And so the focus is, you know, in part motivated by observations that, you know, that while funders are increasingly comfortable with naming the role of race in their social change goals, there was growing pushback on the idea that racial ethnic identity plays a role in the way that leaders approach social change. So we're fine with acknowledging differences, but we weren't comfortable with showing how those differences could actually be assets and carrying out the work. And so that was really as we thought about the work itself. And more so, you know, the article notes the calls across the social sector to put BIPOC leadership at the forefront have always been there for anyone to listen. Uh, the case for the importance of proximate leadership for the sake of impact has been made many times over. Bias-fueled myths uh, have been debunked about the lack of qualified leaders of color. Um, and so this article wasn't about getting at that. Uh, that, that's all been proven. The article was not in, an attempt in any way to do any of that again. We wanted through the article to, you know, persuade clients and through conversations across the sector and really answer questions around what we've heard uh, from others wondering what does it mean to elevate leaders of color? What does it mean to benefit from BIPOC genius and the work itself? Uh, and how do we make sure that as an organization, we're actually taking advantage of the skills and assets that people bring to the table? So that was the thinking behind the article itself. I appreciate you giving us background on that. And someone may hear about this topic and initially incorrectly think that perhaps people of color inherently lead differently by virtue of being born of a certain race or ethnicity. But that's not certainly your perspective. In fact, you point out the ways people of color move through and experience the world and how that can affect how they lead. So talk more about that distinction. Of course. And so, like, as you point out, no one is suggesting through the article that Black leaders and leaders of color more broadly are inherently better than their white counterparts. Uh, nor are we suggesting that people of color inherently lead differently by virtue of being born a certain race or ethnicity. As you point out, the way people of color have experienced the world up to this point can affect how they lead. Uh, this goes beyond experiences of oppression or historic marginalization. 
It, it includes really the connection, the meaning, the joy that these leaders can draw upon from their communities and their respective cultures. And as a result, these things are assets and skills that many leaders of color develop and excel at because of the experience and perspectives they, that identity brings. So in many ways, I joke all the time that, you know, as a person of color, a queer young, a queer person of color, there are things that in your early years as working in the nonprofit sector that are liabilities on how you navigate the world, how you proceed within the world, that if you manage to hone those skills, manage to develop them, become your assets. You see the world differently, you engage differently, and because some options are closed off to you, other options are opened up. And you learn to leverage those options differentially. And as a result, you just lead differently because you have a different set of assets, you have a different set of skills, you have a different set of muscles that have brought you to where you are. And those are the ones that you leverage from a work perspective. So it is a question of experience uh, and how those experiences, many that are put on top of you as a person of color, if you will. So those experiences are in many ways how you've navigated the world, but they create a very different way of thinking about leadership and a way of interacting from a leadership perspective that's really powerful. Uh, and it's one that should be celebrated. Being in the nonprofit space, one of the biggest questions I get is about grant funding. Nonprofit leaders know that grants can be a very important part of their overall revenue, but knowing how to write grants well and where to find them can leave many of us overwhelmed. Well, it's a good thing my friend Holly Rustic at Grant Writing and Funding creates ways to make grant writing simple and achievable. Well, here's the good news. She is offering you, my listener, a free grant writing class. And of course, she also has her own podcast, Grant Writing and Funding. So I encourage you to visit grantwritingandfunding.com slash Rob for the free grant writing class and find out more about Grant Writing and Funding podcast. Once again, that's grantwritingandfunding.com slash Rob. Well, in the last few years, we've definitely seen this tremendous increase in the area of being more aware of, proactively addressing issues of DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, of course. Now, you argue in this article that oftentimes where nonprofit organizations can miss the mark is when they incorrectly assess leadership competency when hiring and developing talent. Now, why is this, do you think, and what is a better way to assess leadership competency? This goes back to the point, Rob, you made earlier about this idea of you know what you know. Okay. Um, as you think about success, as you think about what leadership looks like, we all in many ways mimic what we've known and what we've seen, right? And so I think as a result, we in many ways project our own notions of what success looks like from a work perspective. And very often we're left with leadership models that are fairly pale, male, and stale, right? They don't really get at the inherent diversity that exists within the world or the large set of skills and assets that exist in the world either. And so I think here, as you think about success, one, we have to be open to different forms. And I know it sounds like the most silly thing to say in the world, but you know, I joke the quote that we throw around all the time in our office as we carry out this work is Octavia Butler quote, there's nothing new under the sun, but there are new suns, right? And so ultimately, as we think about our work, our work is about casting those new suns that others live under, giving people options and showing that there are other options that exist within the world that we live in and work in. Uh, so I think that you know, it becomes a question of both understanding where there are differences in how people approach the work, but also understanding those, those differences can be assets. Those differences aren't problems, they're solutions, right? I was at a conference uh, just last week in Miami with some work at Stanley folks and it was great work around philanthropic leading, philanthropic work and, 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 and leadership within a philanthropic sector. And someone made the wonderful analogy that ultimately within the philanthropic space, within the leadership space in the nonprofit sector, our team is not strong because basically we don't have the right players on the team. We have to bring in different players with different skills, different assets, and different ways of approaching the work to build a strong team to carry out the work. 
And if we have all the same players with the same skills, the same liabilities, the same assets, it doesn't really allow us to have a, a well-rounded approach to solving for issues. I think also, you know, it's really interesting how, and it's noted in the article, in a sector that, you know, supposedly values social innovation, we're missing the genius that comes from being a part of communities that have sur survived in spite of direct government policies, seeking to remove them, seeking to oppress them. So there's an ingenuity that comes with success in life that should be taken advantage of. And really, how can we think about those communities as serving as catalysts for impact? and really elevate their skills and their assets as the answer and the solution as we move forward. So as, celebrate that as the new sun that we're casting that we're all living under. Well, in this article, you do uh, start talking about various attributes of leadership. In fact, one of those, you talk about motivation and the role that motivation plays in leadership. What did you find in your research with these 25 leaders when it came to the role of motivations in one leadership? Why did it stand out and what did you find? 100%. And so, you know, motivation is definitely one of the three critical areas that we saw some distinctions, if you will, differentiality, motivation, as well as relationships and networks, also some skill sets and behaviors. The motivation question was really interesting because you saw in many ways, one, two distinguishing characteristics. One, you saw that leaders of color understood that success was something that happened over time and be very often beyond them from a generational perspective, right? And so ultimately within the Traditional American model, you think of hiring a powerful leader who will change the world in their tenure at an organization, right? And so success becomes very individual over a 10, 15 year period of time, supported by a board um, and a community of, of advocates and stakeholders. You saw with community leaders of color that they saw success as being more of a relay race in which they were carrying a baton and passing that baton, generationally speaking. And so as a result, they saw themselves as being called, called to the moment to carry the relay as far as possible, carry the baton as far as possible. And so this idea of their naming their period as a calling, naming their work as a calling, naming that I'm here because so many others have sacrificed for me to be here, joking that I don't really want to be here. The other things I can do with my time, but literally this is why I'm here. People sacrifice for me to be here to carry the work forward, I think was really powerful and meaningful. It also, you know, came up in the conversations as well that so many of them saw this work not only from motivation perspective as success within a moment that they're in, but success generations out that they would never see. And so, you know, talk about this very often as a wonderful analogy. It's uh, Duke Ellington, as I'm, I'm a New Orleans boy, so big jazz hit. And, and, and Duke Ellington is a wonderful jazz composer, was a wonderful jazz composer. And one of my favorite pieces by him is this piece uh, called Three Black Kings. Uh, and it was an absolutely beautiful piece. Alvin Ailey dances to it. It was my, grand my grandfather's favorite pieces. I learned very late in life, actually within the last you know, year or so, that, that he dictated the piece from his deathbed. Um, he never heard the piece performed. He dictated the piece to his son, who took the dictation and produced the piece some years after his death. And I share that analogy because in many ways, I kind of feel like so many folks working in this space, people of color, see their time as a tenure to actually offer green books, success approaches, roadmaps, success for future generations to take it on. And so this idea of success being something that's multi-generational and you're being a part of that piece becomes a very different way of thinking about what success looks like for an organization. I think the other piece, you know, with that in mind is community call-in piece. And this comes up and, you know, as a California boy, I've yet to figure out how to talk about this in a way that's respected across the country. Uh, but uh, very often, you know, we talk with many leaders who talked about, ultimately, it's very different when you feel a calling from your community, but also a love from your community. You feel loved by your community, you feel a love for your community. 
And when you operate uh, in a service capacity with ultimately a love for the groups that you serve, the work isn't transactional. It's very much so personal. When you love the groups that you serve and you commit yourself to, you perform differently. You expect different things of them. Uh, you're able to see the assets and the beauty within that community itself. And you're able to support the work from a longer period and perspective because you see the long-term gain, right? Um, and so there's something to be said about what does the work look like when you actually love the folks you're working with as opposed to just transactional work to serve underserved groups. Groups, there is something to be said about, you know, how does love impact how you do the work and how you carry out the work? And there's a wonderful quote by a woman that we work with all the time, Liz Thompson. She says all the time that, you know, she interacts, uh, she runs a uh, Black philanthropic entity, the, the 1954 a project. And she said, most importantly, we operate from a place of love because all that's done in love is done well. And that level of commitment and motivation is very different, can be very efficient at the work, be very tenacious at the work, but operating from a place of love, a place of joy is a very different place to operate from. And it's actually a fuller well to pull from, from a success perspective and from a 10-year perspective as well. It's interesting you talk about those. So when you talk about love as a motivation for people in these various roles, do you feel like the organizations that really are led by the executive leadership team, by that love motivation, are they the best run organizations or are they the most impactful? How would you, would you quantify that in any way? Well, I would say the most impactful, definitely. I think there's something to be said about the fact that, you know, if you're able to actually appreciate the community that you're working with and see the assets within that community, they then all the work is asset-based, right? You're operating from a very different starting point. You're actually operating from a place where you see the communities have all that they need. You're just giving them more of that, right? Uh, and so I think that there is definitely something to be said about how do you work with a community in a way that you appreciate their assets, that you appreciate what they bring to the table. You celebrate that as enough uh, and you solve for the answer, recognizing that you have a lot to work with as opposed to this belief that you have to bring everything in or that in some ways communities are flawed because they've been underserved, right? And so I do think that this piece, this piece around love as a motivation for the work is a really powerful one. It gives you both a very different starting point and a different answer as you carry out the work as well. So it's all, all this work is impact-driven, right? Um, I mean, efficiency only counts for impact. As a result, you have to be thoughtful about how you interact with organizations and communities in a way that really draws on what they bring to the table and shows that you appreciate them as who they are and what they could possibly be as well. We'll be right back. Do you want a clear step-by-step -step system to write grants so that your nonprofit secures funding in a stress-free manner? Well, check out the free grant writing class, How to Write Winning Grants in Seven Proven Steps. You will walk away with seven nuggets of grant writing clarity and a free action workbook so you can start writing higher quality grants today. Just watch this free class now at grantwritingandfunding.com slash rob. Again, that's grantwritingandfunding.com slash rob. Do your investments align with your values? Well, now is the time to increase your triple bottom line to better people, profit, and the planet. Amalgamated Investment Services, a division of America's socially responsible bank, has a deep-seated commitment to affecting systemic change through investments. By specializing in triple bottom line impact, they can help navigate the common hurdles experienced by nonprofit organizations and foundations, from creating a sustainable policy statement to avoiding the all-too-prevalent greenwashing. If you'd like to join them in creating a more just and sustainable world, please visit amalgamatedbank.com slash nonprofit investing. Securities offered through Infinex Investments Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Amalgamated Investment Services is a trade name of Amalgamated Bank. Infinex and Amalgamated Bank are not affiliated. 
As a leader of a nonprofit, you know firsthand how important it is to have the right technology tools and strategies in place to achieve your mission. Well, that's where Heller Consulting comes in. Heller Consulting is a premier consulting firm that specializes in helping nonprofit organizations achieve their goals through effective technology strategy and implementation. Whether you need help with technology roadmaps, CRM strategy, Salesforce, or Microsoft implementations, Team Heller has you covered. With Heller Consulting on your side, you can trust that you'll have the support you need to make the most of your organization's technology resources. Visit teamheller.com slash NLP to learn more. Again, that's teamheller.com slash NLP to learn more. Georgia College and State University is Georgia's public liberal arts university. They have a 36-hour Masters of Public Administration program, which is fully online, using innovative techniques to engage students while allowing flexibility for working professionals. The program is fully accredited and earned U.S. News and World Report's Best Graduate Program ranking in its 2021 edition. There are two 12-hour professional certificates offered alongside the program, Leadership and Nonprofit Management and Election Administration. And if you're out of state, there are no additional costs for out-of-state students. Check out Georgia College and State University today. One addition to motivation is one of the attributes of leadership. Um, I've had many people on my show actually talk about like the top most important aspects of leadership and self-leadership continues to come up as one of the number one attributes, if you will, of leadership uh, and maybe the most important trait of leadership. Now you also address leading of oneself. Uh, what did you find in these interviews when it came to leading oneself? You know, it's interesting. So I think that what's very clear is that obviously the folks who've taken on these roles from a leadership perspective, they operate with a space of agency. Uh, they understand the important role they play and the important space they take up, and they take it very seriously. One of the conversations that I had was uh, that was a really powerful one that really stuck with me is a conversation I had with David Thomas, who's the president of Morehouse College. Uh, I'm a Howardite. My dad went to Morehouse. My grandfather went to Morehouse. My uncle's went to Morehouse. I went a little bit further north to Howard. Uh, so I just want to put that out there, make it perfectly clear. Uh, but it was a wonderful conversation. It's totally one of those conversations where, you know, your team is taking notes, you're listening attentively to figure out how the answer changes within the work itself. And you start taking notes because you realize he's talking to you as a young Black professional in the space, or how young I am as a Black professional in the space. And he offered these three steps to success as a Black professional, as a person of color, as anyone from a marginalized group operating professionally. The first step was really thinking about what makes you different from a viewpoint perspective from a career perspective, from a life perspective, from a strategic perspective, knowing what makes you different and honoring that and being proud of that. The second step was finding yourself at a place, an organization, a community, an institution that sees that difference as critical to their success. Not a nice to have, but literally without that difference, we can't do what we want to do well, right? And the third step was surrounding yourself with people who encourage you to hold on to that difference in service of success for the organization and in service of yourself and your career. And so I think that that self-actualization piece, that self-leadership piece is critical to success because ultimately you have to, you have to be anchored in what you bring to the table and who you are and how you drive the impact of what makes you different, what makes you special. Otherwise, you'll never make it past the white gaze, <laughs> as we say professionally speaking, right? And so I think you have to be able to really be thoughtful about who you are and what brings to the table you have to navigate yourself in the space itself. You have to see yourself as a tool and, and, and a, um, a catalyst to impact. Um, but you also have to operate from a place of humility. 
recognize that in the fullness of time, as I joke with folks, space is important, but also insignificant. So it's a, it's a constant dynamic, right? Like that you have to calibrate and be able to take advantage of and really appreciate to not burn yourself out and be in it for the long run. Well, that's a great segue into the next question really is there is no doubt that leadership is hard. Uh, leadership is lonely. Leadership is depleting. And you talk about the need for leaders to be comfortable with discomfort. Talk more about that. What do you mean by that exactly? Yeah, well, you know, this goes back to, I think that ultimately at some point, for me, at least in my early 30s, you realize that no one knows what they're doing and we're all making up as we go along. Ultimately, I think that, you know, we're all smart people with a big bag of tricks and opportunities to, to work from and tools and whatnot and so forth. So making up is a little bit <laughs> understatement, a level of humility. But I do think there's something to be said about the world from a leadership perspective or the world in general is fairly chaotic. Things are constantly moving. The world is constantly changing. And so you have to be able to roll with the punches. You have to be able to, as I see all of us that are gifted here in the consulting world, to take two data points and draw a line. You have to be able to figure out what's the story that you're living under and make sense of the world as you are. You also have to be comfortable with trusting where you are in the space and trusting the decision you're making is the best decision you can make given the data that you have at the moment. But that decision can change, right, uh, as the data changes. I think what's interesting, and we saw this within the article itself in the interviews, we saw that people of color were more comfortable with ambiguity, right? I joke all the time that part of it is because we all know that the best is yet to come. And so we're all comfortable knowing that we don't know what the answer is, but we're trying to build towards developing it. Developing it. I think it's also partially as well that we're used to being in worlds where we don't quite understand where we fit in or where others don't see where we fit in as, as well. And so we have to have the mental bottles to make sense of the space that we're in to carry us forward in the thinking itself. And so I think that's where the ambiguity piece becomes really interesting, being comfortable in the moment, being comfortable with having, in some ways, a long-term strategic perspective of what you're trying to achieve and being able to, in some ways, back up, figure out what's the recipe in the moment, given the ingredients that you have, recognize you have a sense of what the dinner is, you have a sense of what the meal is, but the recipes may change given what ingredients you find in the, in the refrigerator at the time or in the cabinet at the time. And so I think that's where the ambiguity piece becomes really interesting and really powerful and really meaningful. And also that, that level of comfort with ambiguity becomes a huge asset uh, in carrying out the work because you also, there's a, a space for just radical imagination around what could possibly exist and a comfort with knowing that the answer may be something we've never seen before. And so you have to be able to be thoughtful about how do you create that or accept that or respect that in a thinking. I like how you put that analogy. That's really well put. Now, there also is a sentiment out there when it comes to leadership that the old command and control approach to leadership, while outdated, is still being applied in way too many organizations. So I'm curious if you've seen this as well, particularly with your research for these 25 guests. And if so, if you've seen that still, what's the antidote to this command and control style of leadership? Yeah. So, you know, interestingly enough, I think that, yes, command and control is definitely still in play. Once again, it goes back to we do what we know. <laughs> Um, and Rob, you'll appreciate that I joke all the time within the work itself that one of the things that we don't talk about is there is a huge generational shift that's happening from a leadership perspective, right? And so I raised my hand as a Gen Xer, right? Like you have the, the baby boomers are finally stepping down as a generation. They stayed in as long as they could, that's for sure. We have the millennials that are stepping into power situations, right? And the Gen Xers, we're here. Honestly, we don't want to be here. We're just here. We don't want to be here, but here we are, right? And so as that baton is being passed, our job isn't really to hold the baton, it's to make sure it's not dropped between the two generations that think very, very differently about power, about leadership, about collaboration, about thinking, and all those things. 
And so I think ultimately, in many ways, this old guard approach to leadership is a throwback to a generational approach, which was the only one that we knew, right? It's almost the benevolent dictator that kind of hands out the orders and their answer is the right answer. And it's one that I say for the record, as a Gen Xer, I completely enabled in my role as a junior employee, but applesauce, you're the boss, let me know how I can fit in, right? I think that now we're seeing more, uh, generationally speaking, folks that have some really strong values around the work, some really strong thinking around the work. We've been really thoughtful about hiring folks with very diverse backgrounds. And as a result, we have to give them the space to employ those backgrounds, employ that knowledge, employ that thinking in a way that drives us to a different answer. And as a result, we have to have what's more of a servant leadership approach, where as a leader, you leverage your positionality to elevate voices that can get us to the right answer. Whereas a leader, you recognize that proximity gets you to the answer. So you elevate the folks and the voices that have the connection to the proximity, right? That comes in the form of a more, you know, democratic leadership process or processes, liberatory practices, as folks like to call them within the work itself, where you're really elevating the voice of us in the organization. It also comes in the form of co-leadership models. We have organizations that have two, three CEOs, leaders that are named, and where you have, in some ways, we joke all the time that historically, if you're really good competent expert, strategic thinker, you're either, you're both promoted and punished with a promotion that forces you to manage people, right? And many people don't want to manage people, right? This is, this is a mark of success and in some ways can be a punishment. How do we get people senior roles that allow them to live into the things that they do well and they really enjoy? And how do you create models that allow all those folks to work together at the same time? And where in many ways is their liberatory practices that allow, you know, allow the best voices, the best ideas to work together to drive the answer. Well, another trend I've seen recently cropping up, especially after COVID, was a collaborative model of leadership. In other words, uh, they don't just have one executive director or CEO of a nonprofit. They have two or possibly more. Now, it was interesting. I noticed that you researched a nonprofit that has four executive directors. Could you talk a little bit more about that? How did that arise and, and what have been the results so far from your research? Yeah, and that's what I was noting in the earlier the earlier take, just talking about how people are really being thoughtful about how do you bring all the voices to the table from a leadership perspective. I think ultimately what we saw is that, you know, we're in a very interesting space where you had many organizations, not the one that was in the article, but many organizations had in many ways leaders that were fairly abusive from a leadership perspective, uh, uh, and that in many ways didn't necessarily allow for there to be more uh, equitable practices across leadership uh, or allow for all voices to be brought to the table. I think, so what you're seeing in many ways is, I wouldn't say a hyper-correction, but it's definitely a correction of problematic management processes where you have folks that basically act as peers from a leadership perspective. So you don't necessarily have the CEO as the head, the CEO falling underneath, the chief of programs falling underneath. You actually, all those folks are seen as critical success to the organization. They're able to operate within their lane uh, with a co-leadership model in itself. And so it's a really great way of thinking about the work because one, I think that very often the work with an organization can be very siloed. People are really good at their work. They're really good at their lane, but they don't really discuss and, and connect across the work itself. And so interestingly enough, what we're seeing with those co-leadership models is that they diminish the silos because in many ways you have to talk with each other to lead together. And so as a result, the conversations become a lot more intersectional from a content perspective. People see exactly where their work supports the other's work. And people are actually able to make a step back uh, and make amends, if you will, or make uh, uh, discretions or, or change up the work in a way that they know will support the others within the organization itself. And so you don't have one person making the decision. You have mutual decisions that are being made across the group based on what others see as success for the whole 
Uh, and so I think that's where we're seeing really some learnings from that space itself. Ultimately, the, interestingly enough, and this is surprising to me, even I said this is a good, you know, sh- a nonprofit strategy consultant, those organizations are not as messy as I would think, actually. Uh, they actually work quite well because, uh, one, there's something to be said about when you're hiring or creating a co-leadership model, you're a lot more attentive about who you co-leader with, right? And so already, in some ways, from an HR perspective or a hiring perspective, you've eliminated a lot of the tensions that normally exist within a leadership group in itself. I think actually those co-management and co-leadership models produce greater humility within the work itself because people don't feel as if they have to advocate for their work to one person who's the leader uh, of the work itself. They're actually making more of a diplomatic approach to leadership and are able to understanding where the trade-offs are from a work perspective and how they can support each other with the best answer. I think also, interestingly enough as well, the organizations that are taking on these co-leadership models are very often very much so community engaged. And so in many ways, the co-leadership model allows them to elevate the community as the ultimate stakeholder in the work and the ultimate decision maker within the work itself. And so it's a way of almost flipping that leadership on on its head in a way that's powerful and meaningful because it really prioritizes the community as the highest stakeholder in success and impact. Well, based on all you've learned from these various interviews, I was curious to find out what, in your opinion, are the biggest issues facing nonprofit leaders today? I mean, the biggest issues now are the same issues as ever, I suppose. You know, I think ultimately, once again, nothing new to this stuff. I'm just new sons, uh, for better or for worse. I, I, I noted earlier that we are in a fairly chaotic period. And so I think that there's a lot happening now. We've lived through, you know, four years of what was a, a very disruptive presidency to be charitable, followed by, uh, you know, the, the COVID. There was a whole civil rights movement that happened in the middle of COVID. Uh, I think that, you know, a lot of things were unsettled and things are kind of falling into place, but in a new world order. Uh, And so we're all trying to figure out where we fit in and how that looks. I said that that level of ambiguity, as we talked about earlier, uh, is really important and one that people think about. I'm reminded in many ways as well, uh, and I'll I'll share this uh, with you and with folks listening, because I think it's a really helpful story. I'm a member of the Donors of Color Network, uh, which is a a network of of, of high net worth uh, people of color. Uh, that are really thinking about progressive philanthropy and racial and, and equitable philanthropy and how do you use, how do you position communities of color to drive answers around philanthropy in ways that dis- disrupt the answer. And we were having our convening at some point last year. Um, and so we we're there for some three years in and, and New Mexico talking about all the issues and talking about the level of turbulence that exists in the world and really scratching our heads as to what the answer was. And Irvishi Bade, who was a good friend uh, and, and mentor and ally in the work, queer icon and, 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 person really driving the work in a meaningful way, uh, who passed just some months ago, couldn't attend the event, but she gave the closing remarks at the event. And she looked out the room of all of us in this space. And we all looked just, Rob, we were tired, just exhausted. I'm sure we just looked frazzled in many ways. And she looked out on the group and she said, I want you guys to know that I know the world feels fairly uh, chaotic right now. And I know that it's easy to feel dispirited, but I want you to know that this is what winning looks like. Winning looks like chaos. And so take this chaos as a sign of winning. I just want you to look around the room, look at each other. This is what a winning team looks like. And so for me, I think what's really interesting about this work is that we are in a fairly chaotic space, but this is what it looks like when you create new narratives and disrupt broken ones. Uh, it's chaotic. It's a lot of things in the air. Uh, but I think that that's a, that's a sign of winning uh, and a sign of the space that we're trying to create. I think also this piece around, you know, we being, you know, look around the room and, and this is what a winning team looks like. We are in incredibly capable hands. Um, but this is where, I mean, the podcast is really motivating for me. I get to speak with these wonderful leaders who are driving work from these various quarters of the world, 
uh, these various angles, who have these wonderful lived experiences, who speak from a place of joy, who speak from a place of hope, who recognize that the work ahead is challenging, but they're ready for the game. They're ready for the challenge itself. And the podcast really gives me an opportunity to allow them to talk about what they see as the future that we're trying to create, what world they're driving in it. And there's this wonderful Haitian expression uh, that I love uh, and translated. It's, it's basically beyond the mountain, there are more mountains. Uh, and it sounds quite defeatist and sad, but ultimately, at the end of things, the point of rejoicing is you've actually made it to the top of one mountain and you're able to look out to see the mountains ahead. To once again, to see that multi-generational fight ahead uh, and know that you brought uh, the community to the top of one mountain and prepare them for the, to climb the next one together. So I think all of that speaks to, yes, chaos, work ahead, generational challenges, uh, different definition of what success and impact looks like. But I think we have the right people grappling with all the real issues. Well, as you mentioned, you've got this second installment, if you will, of this podcast series. Talk a little bit more about it. Share with my listeners what it's about and then also how people can find out more about this article that you've written. 100%. And so ultimately, the podcast itself was once again going back to this opportunity to give leaders of color space to talk about their leadership styles, what trained them, what made them who they are, and what gives them really the joy and the motivation to keep on carrying on the work, right? So we had a wonderful first season. Some wonderful six interviews. The second season just dropped. Uh, it's live on wherever you go to your podcast, Apple and otherwise, uh, Dreaming in Color. It's there. Go check it out. Uh, we have another eight conversations this time, and we're talking with folks that really represent a broad view um, of what success looks like. They carry out different assets, all people of color within the space, and it's allowing them in many ways to talk about success, talk about the world they're trying to create, and to celebrate the work and communities that they build. I, I joke all the time with folks that want to, um, there are so many motivations for this this work, so many motivating motivations for the podcasts themselves. And people are wonderful storytellers and they kind of heal you and bring you joy and listen to them. They, they feed you spiritually. But I, I joke that there's a wonderful, uh, Andre Leon Talley was a, a wonderful guy who worked in, in the fashion world, a big name and icon who died just recently. Uh, and he worked in, at Vogue for many years. He worked, he was amused to Andy Warhol. He did all the things, Rob. Uh, and when asked about what made him uh, so good at the work itself, he said, without flinching, everything I need to know about fashion, I learned watching my grandmother get dressed for Sunday service back home in rural North Carolina as a child, right? Uh, and so I think there's something to be said about so many of us have these gems from a learning perspective, from an impact perspective that we've been holding on to, uh, that our parents, our grandparents have handed to us, uh, our own little pieces of, of insight or, or green books that have been dictated by others from previous generations. And so these conversations give people both a space to talk about what success looks like, but also to unlock uh, those stories uh, in a way that they can pass them on to others as well, to give them the handrails from a success perspective and to keep them motivated in the work. Well, Darren, thanks for all you do to invest in the nonprofit sector and especially uh, giving a voice for, for leaders of color to really come into the conversation and really teach us more about how we can, as a whole in the nonprofit sector, uh, be as inclusive as possible and really honor uh, all the different backgrounds we come from. So thanks again for all you're doing. Oh, thank you, Rob. And honestly, I have the best and easiest shot in the world. These people are absolutely stellar and just it's a great motivation for me as well. So it's great to just give them the space to tell their stories. Once again, I encourage folks to listen to the podcast uh, and also to check out our articles in SSIR and HBR and wherever you find all the things on our website as well. So BridgeFan does great work around knowledge, particularly around equity. So I encourage people to take advantage of all those insights. Well, again, Darren, thanks for being on the show and thanks for all you're doing. And congrats again on this podcast series. 
Hey friends, well, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to other podcasts. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will actually help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. You can also join the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast community, find other resources and interviews of past guests all on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Well, thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better.